It's a delight to be here today and worship with God's people. Is it not? All right. All right, our scripture reading today. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, the Holy Scriptures read, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me then is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, he will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you today. We just ask, Lord, that once again you would be our teacher through your Spirit. We ask, Father, that today that we would leave understanding this text intellectually, but not just that, that we would leave with the affections of our heart changed. Help us to see King Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his beauty and, beauty and radiance. Help us to realize all the things of this world are lesser gods, nothing but dying idols that are fading away and that will soon will burn up, and then all that is eternal will remain. So help us live for eternity. Help us to store up treasures in heaven through the power of your spirit, for your glory and our good. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. If you don't realize who you are talking to, sometimes that can get you in big trouble. For example, there was a company that was considering closing down one of its branches, and so the executive team, they called in that branch manager to interview to explain why they should leave that branch open. So it was all set up for the appointment where that manager would come in, sit down with the regional manager, and say, this is why you shouldn't close us down. And so, realizing that this was quite the important meeting, the man showed up early, hoping to get there before anyone was even in the boardroom so he could get situated, get comfortable, run through his delivery, and so that's what he did. And as he got there, a lady came in, walked over to the coffee station, looked to wipe up a little spot on the side, and he said to her, 
darling? Steak made already. If you could fix me up a coffee real quick, I have a meeting with the regional manager in about five minutes. The woman just stared at him for a good long five to ten seconds, and then she coldly said, I am the regional manager. Oops. A man once arrived at a large speaking event, and when he went to go in, the security guard rudely stopped him and said, what on earth do you think you're doing? Don't you realize that you need a ticket to get in here? The man responded, oh, sorry, no, I, I'm, and then the security guard cut in. Well, if you don't have a ticket, then you have to leave. The man calmly replied, well, if I leave, then so does everybody else, because they're here to hear me speak. Oops. There was once a woman who was called into the office of her professors on account of art plagiarism. She had turned in her artwork, and they saw it, and they called her in to challenge her on her plagiarism. And so by the end of this conversation, she was not only confused, but crying, explaining that she had no idea what they were talking about, and she never intended, and never has, and never would steal somebody's artwork. However, they didn't believe her. They thought she was lying. And so they pulled out the proof. They turned their computer screen around and said, explain this then. She kind of laughed for a second and said, that's a Google image search pulling from my own website with my own artwork. Oops. One more. There was once a man who came healing the sick, raising the dead, and casting out demons. He lived a perfect life, not just a good life, a perfect life without any sin at all. And yet, despite all this, they said he was of the devil, of Beelzebul, as we just read. They said he was a blasphemer, which was a crime worthy of death. They said he was a guilty man because he hung around with guilty sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves. And yet... Who was he? None other than God's servant, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Big oops. As we'll see this morning, this failure to recognize the king's identity led these religious leaders and ultimately all of the nation then to respond wrongly to the king. They treated him in a way that they shouldn't have because they didn't understand who he truly was. And because they responded wrongly to him on account of failure to recognize him, boy, did it lead to a catastrophe, didn't it? The greatest catastrophe of all time at their hands. And so for us this morning, we obviously want to avoid that fate. Hopefully you do. And so we must recognize the king. Why? So that we will not, like them, respond wrongly to the king. You can respond wrongly to the king, as they did, and we don't want to do that. So if we are going to respond rightly to the king, we need to respond in three ways, and here they are. We must recognize, first, his arrival, second, his power, and third, his pardon. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. That's going to be our text this morning give you a minute to get there. Now, if we were to sum up 
Matthew's gospel, we could rightly say that Matthew wants us to recognize the identity of the messianic king. He wants us to understand who he is and properly identify him so that we can respond to him rightly. Okay, I said the word messianic. What does the word messianic even mean? Well, if you've been here with us through this series, we've talked about this a lot. Messianic, it means, as we saw last week, it's a title talking about God's special, unique, chosen servant. All right? And this was God's servant who was going to come on a special mission. And what was that? It's to bring hope. Hope to the world. The light came into the darkness, as we read earlier in Matthew. And this wasn't just a hope for the Jewish nations. No, as we saw last week, this was a hope for all the nations of the world, not just the Jewish nation. What kind of hope? Not just a hope for good jobs, a hope for low inflation and a good economy, not good education, not just low crime rates, good hospitals. No, what kind of hope are we talking about? Ultimate hope, hope of everlasting life. And why do we need that hope? Because we live in a world of death. We live in a world of constant decay. If you wait about 10 years and look in the mirror, you recognize that decay. I was recently looking at some family photos of when Emily was Nora's age. And for one of the first times in my life, I I recognized something. I'm getting older. That decay is a part of all of our reality. And nothing is going to stop it bar one thing which will eventually correct it all. See, back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, what happened? They sinned and they brought into this world death, decay, and chaos. And ever since then, we've been hopeless, wanting hope to set us free from that curse. We've been wanting to go back into the pre-curse era. We needed somebody who would come and break the curse. And so that happened. God, back then, right in Genesis 3... After Adam and Eve sinned, he promised to send a curse breaker. He promised to send one who would bring hope for us all, who would be the healer, who would heal us once and for all. And Jesus' life and ministry was little appetizers before the main course. When he went around healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, it was, as we just sang a moment ago in that song, a foretaste, a foretaste of deliverance. And make no mistake, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, no matter how difficult your life may be right now, that foretaste is a foretaste of what's to come. It is coming. The hope will come. And how? How do we get that hope? By living the perfect life? No. By dying the death that we deserved? No. It's all by Christ. Christ is the one who lived the perfect life that we never could. Christ is the one who died the death that we deserve on a cross. And Christ is the one who rose again on the third day into glorious life, and then he turns remarkably to his enemies, which is all of us in here, make no mistake about that, and says, this is for you. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you life. Though your bodies age, like all of ours does, and will eventually decay and die, that is but a seed that will be planted into the ground and sprout to that same new life that happened for Christ, but for us. That's our hope. That's what we're talking about here. 
And so Matthew has told us all about the arrival of the great curse breaker, all about the Redeemer, the Savior. He has many names that describe what he will do. He was none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the promised messianic king. He told, Matthew did, of Jesus' miraculous birth, born of a virgin, of his baptism, where the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and then a voice from heaven spoke out and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he didn't stop there. He said, listen to him. Why listen to him? Because in him are the words, as the apostles said, of eternal life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That doesn't open the door for Buddhism, for Islam, for any other faiths. It's Christ or nothing. That's the only path. Matthew told us of Jesus' divine teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, which ended with what? The crowd saying, who is this man? He did, what teaching is this? He teaches like no one other before, for he teaches like one with authority. Matthew told us how this king was a compassionate and caring king who would not break any bruised reeds, as we saw last week, nor put out any smoldering wicks, which just simply means if you're a hurting and troublesome sinner, he won't cast you away. He graciously calls you in because he is compassionate and caring. And why? For the king of love our shepherd is, whose goodness reigns forever, as the old hymn goes. And yet, how did the religious leaders respond to him? With hatred, venomous, murderous hatred. And why? Well, as we saw a few weeks ago, it was after he corrected their wrong, unbiblical view of the Sabbath, which was simply a man-made religious system, which is like every religion out there except for Christianity, which tells you, you know what? You know how you get on God's good side? More good things plus less bad things equals godly man. You do that, you're good, you're in, you do enough bad things, and you don't do that, you're out. And Jesus says, your whole system don't work. You don't get it. As he told the rich young ruler, you know, he pointed out to him, he came, he said, all these laws I've done since my youth. He says, oh yeah? Sell all your goods and come and follow me. And he couldn't do it. Not because Jesus is telling us that in order to earn his love, earn his forgiveness, we must produce good works. No, it's to point out we can't. The law shows us our inability to live up to God's glorious standard. And so Christ comes and graciously does that for us on our behalf. And the religious leaders hated this. They didn't want this messianic king, and so they plotted to utterly destroy him. And why? Because they failed, stubbornly failed, we should say, to recognize the king's identity, to recognize that he had truly arrived And they absolutely should have recognized this. And so coming to our passage this morning, we see that the question of Christ's identity keeps coming up all through Matthew. It keeps coming up over and over again as we are shown loudly and clearly who Jesus truly is. And who is he? Look at verses 22 through 23 with me. Then a demon Oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Son of David? What what does that mean? What's he talking about? Well, the son of David 
is a messianic title. And there's been several of these that have popped up throughout Matthew's gospel, which all tell us a little something about how to identify the Messiah, who he would be. It's kind of like a credential or calling card, I guess. And so what this is, Son of David, it's a messianic title taken from a prophecy given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which speaks of God's promise to King David to do what? That he would raise up a king from his line whose kingdom would never end. A king who wouldn't just be David's son, but God's son too. It's remarkable. And so throughout the book of Matthew, when we see people calling out to Jesus, they say, son of David, have mercy on me. We see that over and over with different people who have various sicknesses and illnesses. They say, son of David, have mercy on me. And when they say that title, son of David, it's an expression of their faith in the fact that he's the Messiah. And so after that happens, what does Jesus often turn and say? He turns and says, your faith has made you well. And then he proceeds to heal them, which is a physical demonstration or a picture, an outward picture of an inward transformation. He heals them outwardly as a picture of showing he has the authority to forgive sins. And so in verse 23, after Jesus miraculously heals the blind and the mute man brought before him, the crowd was so amazed that what do they ask? Can this be the son of David? Which is really, like, you got to understand how they're meaning this. It's kind of like a, really? Him? This guy? And they asked this because it was so clearly an act of God to heal a blind and deaf, demon-possessed person. It was unheard of back in this day. So it was remarkable. And so when the religious leaders saw this, in the face of absolute proof, they refused to believe. They knew it was a sign that he was the son of David. And they should have believed. And then, so they look around. They see the crowd responding to Jesus' remarkable miracle. And they realize they got to shut this thing down fast and hard right here and there. Because it's challenging their entire religious system. It's challenging their authority. And so what do they say? It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. That's a big oops right there. A huge oops. Right there, as verse 31 and 32 tell us, they commit what is called the unpardonable sin. We're going to get to that and explain what that is in a minute. And why did they commit this? Because not only did they fail to recognize their king's arrival, but secondly, they failed to recognize their king's power, which leads us to our second point here. To respond properly to the king, we must recognize, one, his arrival, and two, his great power. Now, let me ask you, why is the crowd still hesitant about whether or not Jesus is truly the Messiah? Because if you read that question, it's kind of this, is this really him? Okay. Why are they so hesitant? Why don't they see these remarkable miracles and immediately recognize that guy's got power from God? He must be the messianic servant of God. Why not? They are hesitant because Jesus' arrival didn't match their expectations. What did they expect? They expected a conquering king. Somebody who would come in and give them their best life now. That's not what they got, was it? They got a king who was meek and mild, who was caring and compassionate. And yet despite all of that, they see Jesus' mighty works, 
They recognize that it comes from God, and they hesitantly ask, can this truly be the Son of God? They're saying, really? That guy? I don't know. Something doesn't add up here. And so recognizing the crowds are starting this inquiry, the Pharisees shut it down, and they say, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And is that the most extreme case of projection in all of human history? I think it is. What's projection? They're, they're accusing Jesus of doing what they're literally doing. They are, by that accusation, they are fulfilling the actual work of Satan. Not Christ. It's projection. And why? Is it because there just wasn't enough evidence to see that Jesus was actually the messianic servant of God? No, there was. There's plenty of evidence. Was it because they had missed it when Jesus showed up with this great evidence showing he was the Messiah? No, they were actually there. They witnessed this, this mighty power over and over again. They saw him heal the man's hand, the withered hand, as we saw last week. And why did they reject him? Because he didn't come to them on their terms. He came on his terms. He came on the Sabbath. He broke down their man-made religious laws, and because of that, he was not accepted by them. They refused to accept him. They would only accept him on their terms, not his, which is a really foolish way to approach the all-powerful, sovereign king of the universe, isn't it? To approach him as a servant and be like, ah, no, 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 king, I'm not doing it your way, I'm doing it my way. That's foolish beyond foolish. So the religious leaders, then they see Jesus' divine work, they attribute it to Satan, which then sets up Jesus' knockdown argument against them, and his arguments are actually three arguments. Let's look at the first one. Look at verses 25 through 26 with me. It says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus' point here is actually pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It's not a lot to explain. He's basically saying, why would Satan work to undermine Satan? Doesn't seem like a winning strategy, does it? Why would Satan work through Jesus to cast out demons of a man who was in bondage? Why would he cast, if he, if he worked to get that man in bondage, why would he cast out the demons that he put there? Doesn't make sense. What is Satan's mission? It's to control, to destroy, to kill, to enslave. And so all that that would do would divide Satan's kingdom and bring it to destruction. And that's Jesus' point. And so he's saying your argument's really pretty stupid, actually. Like, you're saying that I am doing a work that is undermining Satan, but it's done by Satan. Like, pick a horse and ride it here, guys. This doesn't make any sense. Don't you know every kingdom divided falls? And yes, they do. We have a long trail of history of kingdoms that became divided, and they fall. So that's Jesus' first counter-argument. What's his second counter-argument? Well, look at verse 27. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul... Well, then who then to whom your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So evidently, back in Jesus' day, there were Jews, and a lot of people speculate that these were actually disciples of the Pharisees. 
who would go around casting out demons occasionally. They didn't have a really good success rate with it. And we read about this in Acts chapter 19, which is actually a pretty funny tale of how it basically turns into a wrestling match and they get dumpstered trying to do it. For, worth the read for sure. But they weren't able to perfectly or even consistently cast out demons like Jesus could. Not in the same bold and direct all the time manner. They couldn't do it. But still they dabbled in it a bit, relying on incantations, spells, potions, herbs, rings, earrings, in order to try to manipulate the spiritual world. To try to coax demons into doing what they wanted. Not really commanding them as Christ did. But Jesus' form was very, very different, wasn't it? Drastically different. Did he come in with the, you know, the smoke and the chanting and the all-night prayer sessions over? No. He came in, he's like, you out. And out they went. That was it. He commanded them. For he was in complete sovereign control over them. Because he is none other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One command is all it took. And so with this in mind, Jesus says to the religious, leader, religious leaders, if you believe these exorcists work by the power of God casting out demons, and I'm doing the same work even to an infinitely greater and more powerful degree, why do you not admit that I am working by that same divine power? Why the double standard? So after pointing this out, Jesus then says to them in verse 28, if, but, it, if, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has truly come upon you. And yet what do they do? Their arguments aren't going anywhere. He's making them look foolish and silly for about the 9,000th time, probably that month. But what do they do? They stubbornly, obstinately refuse to bend the knee and recognize their king. They won't do it. They refuse to do it. And so Jesus then moves on again to his third response. Look at verse 29 with me. What happens in verse 29? He says then, another example, another counter-argument. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay, this point's pretty straightforward too. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if I'm going to go around, I'm going to plunder Satan's house, you know what I have to do? I've got to be stronger than him. I've got to be able to subdue him if I'm going to do that. So clearly, if I'm doing that, that means I'm in control of Satan. He's not in control of me. You got it all backwards, guys. Remember, Jesus just speaks and out they go running. He didn't have to barter with demons or try to convince them to leave their hosts like the other demon exorcists did. No. This was a powerful king who just had to speak, and out they went. And it was because King Jesus alone is able to bind the strong man Satan and plunder his house. And someday soon, he will ultimately bind him for eternity in the lake of fire. And only he, not you and I, we can't bind Satan. We can't put up hedges of protections that keep his, him locked in. We can't do that. Only Christ can do that. And one day soon, Christ will ultimately bind him for eternity in the lake of fire. And so because Christ is God, he can use power from God that no one else can. For he is God. 
And because he clearly is God and is from God and using God's power, then they got a decision to make here about his identity. They've got to decide, don't they? Either they have two options here. Jesus doesn't give them a third option. He says what? You are either with me or you're against me. That's it. There's no middle ground. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. It's Jesus or, not, or enemy of Jesus. That's it. Which simply means either they are for God or they are against God. And their response to these divine miracles of God that are being manifested through the power of the Holy Spirit reveals their decision, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And their decision wasn't just to speak against the Son of Man. It was to try to murder the Son of Man. What is that Son of Man title? That's a little bit different one. What's that? Well, that's a title different than Son of David. Son of Man is a title, it's a messianic title that we looked at a while back from Daniel chapter 7. And it showed how this great king would rule and reign one day. And so these religious leaders' decision here was to actually speak against not just Christ, the man they sought before him. It was actually to speak against the Holy Spirit. It was to speak against God himself, the power of God, the working of God, in these divine, special, once-in-all-of-human-history example of Jesus' life and ministry where he healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons. They spoke against that, and they said, no, 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 not, not just don't we like you, Jesus, but what you're doing is through the power of Satan, and boom, right there, unpardonable sin. They attributed to the Son of Man, the Messianic King, the working of the Holy Spirit around him, they attributed that to the devil, which was unforgivable. So to, not only was it unpardonable, it was actually unpardonable, we could say. Their decision was actually to speak against the Holy Spirit of God, which was the unpardonable sin, and that leads us to our third point. So to respond properly to the king, we have to recognize his arrival, his power, and third, his pardon. Look at verses 31 through 32 with me, if you would. It says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and every blasphemy, I added the word every there again just so we get it, every sin and every blasphemy, will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And here's the million-dollar question for everybody, for us all. What's the impardonable sin? Can I do it today? Have I already done it? Serious question, right? Because if it's unforgivable, that's like, there's no, there's no take backs on that one. It's a serious thing. So what is the unpardonable sin? Is the unpardonable sin skipping church on Sundays and sleeping? Maybe. Just kidding, it's not. That's not it, but you still shouldn't do it. Is the unpardonable sin committed when you do the atheist blasphemy challenge? This was a thing that was popular like 15 years ago where these atheists got a bunch of 18, 17, 21-year-olds to go on the internet and record a video of themselves. And it was foolish. It was stupid. It was evil saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Just trying to rub it in and show that they're like, I don't care if I commit the unpardonable sin. I don't believe in this junk. Is that the unpardonable sin? No, I don't think so. So what then is the unpardonable sin, and can it be replicated today? This is something that really worries people, I've, I've found out. 
I've heard preachers tell stories of people in their church who they over and over, they just don't, can't seem to get their Christian walk to be anything more than a continual stumble. And so they've gone to their pastors and they're like, I, I think I committed the unpardonable sin 10 years ago. That's why I can't do this. That's why I keep falling. I think I'm beyond the grace of God. I think I'm damned and doomed. Is that it? Is that possible? Can we commit the unpardonable sin as a Christian where we are out of God's grace or prevented from his grace? No. All right, what is it then? There's two basic biblically acceptable options of how we can interpret this text. Okay? One, it's a sin that's not repeatable today. And two, it's a sin that is repeatable today. Clear as mud? Let's pray and go home. No. Okay. Quickly here, the first view is that it is not repeatable today because why? I kind of alluded to this already. It was a unique sin that could only be done during Jesus' earthly ministry. And why? Well, we've got to look at the context here. And this explanation fits really well with the context. That's why it's so plausible. Okay? The context here in this passage is that Jesus, the Messianic Son of God, is performing jaw-dropping miracles. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't dissect it out fully because it's a triune God, right? But in part of Jesus' humiliation, he set his divine powers Aside, it's so hard to explain this without being a heretic. It's, he set aside his glory, his majesty, and humbled himself. And so he, in his earthly ministry, was relying on the Spirit, seeing the Spirit through him in conjunction with the triune God doing these jaw-dropping, inspiring miracles. And so here's what it is. In spite of these in-your-face, undeniable evidence-based miracles, like there's just, the evidence is there, like you can't deny it. What do they do? They attribute the work to Satan. And so in a sense, what this is, it's to attribute a special working of God to the work of Satan. Isaiah 5.20 says this, woe to those who call good evil and good evil. Those, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And woe indeed, and this is the ultimate example of this. So, here's a summary. Here's what this is. The unpardonable sin, according to this view, is the unpardonable sin is to attribute the working of the Holy Spirit to Satan in the life of Jesus' work and ministry while he was here on earth. That makes sense? Okay. And so, think about this logically. Is Jesus here on earth doing those miracles anymore today? No. He has ascended to the throne of the Father. And so, it is not a repeatable thing, a repeatable sin that we can do today. Okay, that's the most popular view, and maybe that relieves some of you. But the second view is still true nonetheless, so let's look at that. The second view is that the unpardonable sin is something that we can do today, so we need to be careful not to do it today. Make sense? You can do it today, so we need to be careful not to do it today. All right? However, It's not like what you think. The unpardonable sin is not, according to this understanding, biblical view of understanding here, it's it's not a one-and-done thing. You can't just, oops, I did it on Tuesday, I, you know, oh man, I'm done for. No. Instead, what is the unpardonable sin according to this view? 
which is actually true, even if it's not true in this text. It is to continually speak against or to reject the work of the Holy Spirit. It's to do that for how long? How many times? Well, until you take your last breath. And then all of your sins are unpardonable. Because you rejected the only means of salvation, which is the grace of God, through the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because what does the Holy Spirit do? Convicts you of sin. Points our hearts to Christ, which is the only path of salvation. And so if you quench that, if you shut that down and say, no, 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 no. You cannot be saved. Which will then one day, on your last breath, lead to every sin you've ever committed being unpardoned before a holy God. According to John 16, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And not only does the Holy Spirit do this today, but he was doing this back then, make no mistake about it, through Jesus' mighty works. He was putting it on display in a unique, special way through the Son of Man. And so the unpardonable sin then is to reject God's offer of salvation day after day after day until finally your last day comes and is gone and you stand guilty in your sins, unpardoned before a holy God. So which view is right? The first one or the second one? If you've been around here long enough, you know the answer is yes. Both are true. You can work out which one the text is actually alluding to here. I think both are true. I think, yes, in one sense, I believe the Pharisees, this text shows us that they sealed their fate right then and there as they hardened their hearts and they continually turned away from the truth and put their hands in front of their face and told themselves, there is no Messiah. There is no Messiah. He's not the Messiah. To the point where then they attributed that work, that special working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the second person, the Trinity, the Son of Man, slow down, Zach, to demons, to the devil. Okay? You could call this the dispensational view if you want. But, yes, but even with that being true, the second view still remains correct, generally speaking, does it not? That applies to us all. Of course it does. Because if we reject the convicting work of the Spirit, we're unpardonable. You cannot be saved apart from responding in repentance to the work of the Spirit and submitting yourself to Jesus, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord. Without that, you cannot be saved, not in this age or the age to come. Well, what does that mean? Just talking about in this life or in the life to come, in eternity. Uh, One pastor that I looked at this week, pointed something out in this text that, i got to be honest, I totally missed it. Totally missed it. And I saw it, I was like, how did I miss that? Well, I think I figured out how I missed it. I think I, probably like a lot of you, when you read this text, you get so, we get so caught up on, okay, what is this unpardonable sin? Oh, man, shoot, did I, did I break this? Did I do this? Okay, like we can easily go there. And so if we do that, we can get distracted from a, this amazing point, and maybe you've already noticed what it is. But look again at verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, being Christ, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What? Like, why why is it wrong to speak against the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, but you get a free pass on speaking against the second person of the Trinity? See the dilemma? Why, Why the difference here? 
What's the solution then? How do we understand it? How do we make sense of this? One way to make sense of this, I think, is to understand that this comment comes right after the passage we looked at last week, which is why it's so important to take verses in their proper context, not just cherry-pick them out, make them say whatever you want. And it comes right after the passage last week, which which speaks of Jesus, God's beloved servant, who will not quarrel, he will not cry aloud, he will not shout in the streets, he will not break bruised reeds, or put out smoldering wicks. He will not turn away the brokenhearted, is what that means. Sinners who are struggling in their sinful bondage. He won't cast them away. If you were here, you remember that all of this in that passage highlights Jesus' meek and humble character. It highlights his mercy and his compassion for hurting sinners. Broken sinners. Faithless sinners who continually stumble in their sin. And he does this because he is a gentle king, not a rough or harsh king. Do you understand how completely unique this is for a king? Not sure you do. See, if you look at the history of all of the human kings that have come throughout time, there's a common denominator, and pretty much all of them were completely terrible. They're awful kings. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, took his friend's wife in adultery and had her killed. It's abysmally bad. Terrible king after terrible king who ended up being egotistically cruel and maniacal psychopaths in a lot of ways. They could kill you for anything they wanted. They could kill you for anything and everything. If you looked at him wrong, it was just like, at him, done. That was it. Remember back in Joseph's dream, uh, the, the chief baker, what happened to him? Didn't go well for him, did it? He ended up dying. Remember Esther and her concern when she appeared before the king? Because remember in the context, if you were going to come before the king, you didn't just go up and be like, hey, king, we got to talk. No, you were summoned. And if you came without being summoned, if the king didn't hold up his scepter to you, you were dead. If he didn't hold that scepter up, when he held it up, it was, a, it was a symbol of pardon for you violating the rule, which was to not come to the king without appointment, without being summoned, and so you had to be pardoned. And if he didn't hold it up, the guards would drag you off and you were done for. And yet, don't miss this. Here is Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, humbling himself before us, and you know what he says? You can insult me. You can spit in my face. You can slap my face. You can nail me to a cross. You can crucify me, and I will not turn you away. Is that remarkable? Do you see God's grace? He will still forgive us. It's not unforgivable, even if we do all that. The Apostle Paul, what did he do? He went around killing Christians, capturing them, hunting down the body of Christ, which is the church, which is us, Christians. And then, yet, what did God do? Half half our New Testament's written by him. Remarkable, remarkable testimony of the grace of God. You can insult him. 
you can despise him. You can live a life of sin your entire life. You can live to be 110 years old. I don't know what the oldest person who lived ever is. I'm guessing it's about 120, but you could be the oldest person who's ever lived in all of human history and live a life of egregious sin, worse than that of Hitler's even, and on your deathbed. If you respond to that work of the Spirit convicting your heart and trust in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, you can be pardoned. You can be forgiven. You really think a bad day is going to make you lose God's love with this kind of love? No, not even close. To the woman at the well, what did he say? Go and sin no more. He touches lepers. He dines with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. He calls the little children to come in. He puts them on his knee. He forgives blasphemy against his name, as the apostle Peter found out, who did it three times. Even on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. But they know not what they do. He does all of this. Why? So that we can boldly, as Hebrews tells us, so that we can boldly approach the throne room of God without fear of rejection, without fear of condemnation, without fear that our Father won't raise his scepter to us and welcome us in. You see this? This is what Christ accomplished for us. Do you see his tender love? Do you see his great compassion and his mercy? And yet, that love comes to us how? You just say, I forgive everybody, no big deal. Good. Go on, sin. When you die, I'll bring you home. No. There's a condition attached. It comes through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And so for anyone who rejects the powerful, grace-filled work of God, which comes to us through the Spirit of God, they cannot be saved. Cannot. There's only one name under heaven by which you must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit calls us and quickens our hearts and regenerates us to be able to believe even in him. I was talking with my dad yesterday about this text. This is kind of a dicey text. Hopefully it doesn't come off that way. But we were talking about this text, all the different views, and just kind of how to approach this and preach it and all that sort of thing, which we often do. And he mentioned the philosopher, I think it was Voltaire, who was an avowed atheist. Very popular atheist. Very influential atheist. And he was asked on his deathbed, he says, what if, what if you're wrong? And he just responds and says, well, then God will forgive me. No, he won't. He won't because he can't. Yes, I said can't. Because, yes, there are things an all-powerful God can't do. Like just forgive sin, for example. He can't forgive it without cost. God can't sin, right? Not only can God not sin because he's a holy God, even though he's all-powerful, he can't just forgive sins. He can't just say, ha, no big deal. Go, wink, you know, like, No, he cannot do that. Our sin created a debt. It was a debt that must be paid. How's that payment come? Through good works? Through being at church every day on Sunday? Through reading your Bible seven days a week? Through prayer? Through 
serving others, giving to the poor, through recognizing that God exists. No, even the demon believe, demons believe, yet they tremble. It comes one way and one way only. Through the shed blood of Christ, through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. So to reject that grace, to reject salvation, it's to leave your, all of your sins upon your shoulders, unpardoned. And so to reject that grace is to reject salvation, which is the only sin that we can commit today if we continue in that sin that will leave us truly unpardonable. Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care how many bad things you've done. I don't care how terrible and sinful and wicked, which our sins are. It doesn't matter how much, how much sin you've done. It doesn't matter if it's as deep red as scarlet. The blood of Christ can wash us white as snow. But only if the conditions are met. Which are what? First two words. Come now, which Jesus just offered us back in the chapter before this. Come now, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In order to do that, what do you got to do? You got to recognize you're tired. You're tired of trying to keep up with the perpetual trying to live a righteous life. You can't do it. You can't do enough good deeds to outdo your bad deeds. Logically, it doesn't make sense anyways, but even if you could, you can't do it. You are in complete, total inability to save yourself. So you must come now, as Isaiah 1.18 says there. And so for those of us who have come, who have been washed white as snow, the work of the Holy Spirit's not done yet, is it? Not even close. Not even close. Well, praise God, we can't commit the unpardonable sin. We can quench the Holy Spirit of God, can't we? Yeah. We can ignore his voice. We can callous our hearts, even as the children of God, where we stop feeling and sensing his conviction in our lives. We can resist his will, Scripture tells us. We can ignore his direction and Don't make any mistake here. The Holy Spirit will direct us. In many ways, we don't even possibly comprehend as we walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. So, how about you? I'm talking to Christians right now. Are you walking in the Spirit in obedience, not by your own strength, which just builds up your pride or makes you defeated and depressed? Are you walking in the Spirit by the power of God, not your own? Are you living on mission for Christ as you strive to point this dying, lost world to the one and only Savior? It's only Him. If not, remember something. You were bought with a price. As we just sang in a moment ago, come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord, our Lord, upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. 
See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. Bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Maybe you're here and you can't say you confidently know that your sins have been washed as white as snow. Maybe you hope they have. Maybe you wish that they were, but you're not totally sure. Don't you know these things are written so that you might know that you have eternal life? Not so that you might guess, that you might hope, that you might wonder, that you might know. So if you are struggling with this, take care of this. Come talk to somebody. We will sit down with you, pray with you, show you from the Word of God how you might be washed white as snow, which is a one-time washing. You don't come back to get washed white as snow over and over and over by your religious obedience. It's a one-and-done thing because it's by the blood of Christ, not by your sweat, not by your works. Don't commit the unpardonable sin by rejecting the blood of Christ and the working call of the Holy Spirit. For if you refuse the come-now part of the gospel... If you reject the Spirit's call, you cannot be saved. And instead, as we are about to sing in a moment, Hear him, ye deaf, ye praise, ye dumb, ye loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. Do you want that joy? Are you living in that joy? If not, come now. Father, I thank you for this text. Father, I pray for the one here today who is sensing the Spirit's convicting call upon them. That they would not respond how the Pharisees did. With excuses. With justifications. That they would do one thing and one thing only. In their hearts, they would drop to their knees for Christ. The one and only Savior and be washed white as snow. Father, I pray for the Christian here today. Pray for us all as Christians. Father, for any who may be struggling, who may be feeling the accusations of the accuser, Satan, wondering if they're worthy. Help them to know they're not. They are not worthy. But because of the worthy one, Christ Jesus, we can be made worthy once and for all by your grace and your great love for us. Father, help us as a church to live in this truth, to go out from these walls, to meditate on these truths, to live by these truths. Father, we're about four weeks from Easter. It's nice out. We're beginning our door-to-door ministry. We're going to be talking to people in our works, at the parks, as we get out and about. We just pray, Lord, that we would go out and use this opportunity to be on mission, to share the one and only hope which we found as we invite others to come now and be washed white as snow. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.